afternoon, and welcome to the 120th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we'll talk about the challenges of teaching and learning about COVID-19 in higher education with Audrey Trushke, Teresa McPhail, and Maddie Larkin. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 4th, 2020, there are 26,427,137 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. It's up from 26,123,176 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 6,183,405 are in the United States. That's up from 6,135,796 yesterday. And there are now a total of 187,347 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 186,392 reported yesterday, yet another day with nearly 1,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now with two obituaries today. Headline, college professor dies teaching online class after weeks long battle with COVID-19. This appeared in the Huffington Post today by Lee Moran. The college professor in Buenos Aires, Argentina, who had been battling symptoms of the coronavirus for several weeks, reportedly collapsed and died Wednesday while delivering an online class from her home. Paula de Simone, 46, a member of the government and international relations faculty at the Universidad Argentina de la Empresa, passed out while teaching via the video conferencing platform Zoom, reported the Clarín newspaper. Students participating in the virtual lecture reportedly asked Dr. Simone for her address so that they could send medical help, according to the Pagina 12 outlet but she only responded, I can't, before passing out, per MDZ online. Images of the tragic incident were later shared online, according to local news reports, sparking anger among social media users. De Simone, the mother of a young daughter, had just days earlier noted on Twitter how she'd been fighting COVID-19 for a month and that her symptoms were showing no signs of easing off. She also revealed that her husband, a doctor who was not at home at the time of her death, was exhausted from the increased workload resulting from the public health crisis. He reportedly arrived home to find his wife dead. The coronavirus has killed more than 9,300 people in Argentina. Upwards of 450,000 have tested positive for the contagion nationwide. The country is currently experiencing a severe uptick in the number of confirmed cases with around 12,000 new infections being recorded each day. The university described as Simone an employee for 15 years in a statement shared on its social media accounts as a passionate and dedicated teacher and a great person. The second obituary today is Joshua Bush. This 
was published May 8th in Kaiser Health News by Sarah Varney. Joshua Bush never left his wife, Lakita, never let his wife, Lakita, forget that she was five hours late for their first date. He never held back telling the truth, Lakita said with a doleful laugh. They met online in 2011, each attracted to the other's lust for travel. For Joshua's 30th birthday, they took a cruise to Bermuda. He yearned to go farther afield to Tokyo to revel over anime. Joshua began his nursing career after high school, eventually ending up at Benton House of Aiken, an assisted living facility. Joshua and Lakita, who works in human resources for a hospital, thought it was allergy related when they both fell ill in late March. Benton House had no confirmed COVID cases at that time, Lakita said. Even still, the staff was taking precautions. A doctor prescribed Joshua flu medication, but his symptoms, fever and aches, but no cough, worsened, and he was admitted to a hospital in Augusta, Georgia on April 4th. That was the last time I saw him alive, Lakita said. Over the next few days, both tested positive for the coronavirus. Joshua was sedated in the hospital for two weeks and died on April 17th. Lakita recovered at home. Joshua's, Joshua was earning a bachelor's degree in nursing at the University of South Carolina, Aiken. May would have marked the couple's fifth anniversary. Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. I'm really excited to introduce my guests. Maddie Larkin is a junior custom design major student at Drexel University. For her major, she combines studies of biology, psychology, criminology, and public health to study humanistic health. She's also a theater minor and is involved in the Pannoni Honors College as a member and student mentor. Theresa McPhail is a medical anthropologist at Stevens Institute of Technology and the author of The Viral Network, a pathography of the H1N1 influenza pandemic out with Cornell University Press. Her research centers on the social, cultural, and political aspects of global health, infectious disease, and medicine. Her next book examines the global rise of allergies and will be published by Random House in 2022. Audrey Trushke is Associate Professor of South Asian History at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey. She's a pre-modern South Asianist by training and is the author of two books on aspects of the Mughal Empire in India. She also publishes on historical memory and the politics of the past in the present. Because the pandemic has made her world has remade her world and she cannot get it off her mind. She's also planning to teach a course at Rutgers Newark this fall called Archiving COVID-19. Maddie, Teresa, and Audrey, thanks for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So I'm gonna start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there today, right now. So Maddie, can I start with you, please? Sure. Um, I'm currently in Haddonfield, New Jersey, which is in South Jersey. I'm living in my family home with my parents and my brother. Uh, I was here with my sister, but she just moved back to school. She goes to St. Joe's. Um, yeah, the pandemic situation, it's slowly getting back to normal. Our restaurants are opening in Jersey on Friday, um, indoor seating, but just at I think 25 capacity, uh, but everyone is keeping their distance still. So yeah, just, just going through the motions every day at home. Thanks for that. Teresa, to you. I think you're still muted, Teresa. 
You would think after a lot of virtual teaching that I would learn to unmute no, myself. There's nothing no, there's nothing intuitive about having to constantly turn yourself off and on. So don't don't ever get used to it. But but tell us oh, where you are and how it's going there. So I'm in Brooklyn. That's where my I live, Brooklyn, New York. My uh, Stevens is actually in Hoboken, New Jersey. And both areas, thankfully, are you know, pretty stable in terms of infection rate and general positive tests. So we're not back to normal by any means, but um, outdoor restaurants are open and Stevens did decide to do hybrid learning for freshmen only. So they allowed freshmen to come back onto campus. So we started that this week and so far so good. So that's where we are. Okay, we'll find out more about how your own teaching is going in that regard. So the students yes. are just the freshman class is back. How big just is the freshman, the freshman class? About a thousand students, so about a thousand. So it's about one fourth capacity. So Stevens usually has about 4,000 students total, not including um, graduate students. Okay, all right. Audrey, same question to you. Where are you calling from and what's the situation there right now? So I am calling in from Hoboken, New Jersey, where, where Teresa teaches is where I live. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, I've, we've, we've gone from sort of one of the, the worst places in the nation, uh, you know, back in April and May. I mean, you looked at the map of those like red bubbles exploding on the U.S. and we were like being suffocated under one of them. So we've gone from that to one of the best places in the nation. Uh, but honestly, the numbers have not really declined much here in the last couple of months. If anything, we've seen a slight surge recently uh, and we are reopening regardless, right? You know, a sort of death toll in the low double digits every week appears to be acceptable now for the state of New Jersey. And the, the situation at Rutgers Newark, then you say a little bit more about what their, their plan is for, for the reopening? Sure, absolutely. So Rutgers Newark, uh, I mean, the, the entire Rutgers system made the decision to go online. So, so we are all teaching online. We started classes this week um, and we made that decision, I want to say back in July. Um, and I'm actually really grateful for that because it gave us all a sort of enough time or, you know, at least some time to prepare for, for teaching online. And based on my experience and the experience of some of my colleagues at Rutgers Newark, uh, many of us feel that the first week of classes actually went relatively well. Um, and I think that's because we had enough time to prepare. There's no measure that I'm aware of that can capture um, anxiety around these reopening decisions, and this is not just in higher ed, this is in K through 12 as well. I spoke with a with a um, high school teacher last week who talked, I, Audrey, just like you said, that um, their school had, dis, had given the announcement very early in July that they would not be trying to come back until January in person, and she described a much better mental health situation for the teachers because of that, um, that important timing of that decision. So, Audrey, let me stay with you um, first, just to get a sense. We're going to talk about teaching and, and learning today in higher ed and what it's like to teach and learn about a set of disasters that are unfolding we're living through. Maybe to set the context a little bit, would you mind telling us a little bit more about what it's been like for you in these past few months to, to live through the pandemic? So I honestly, Scott, I feel like for me, I, I feel like I'm living two different lives, right? 
one life is actually really idyllic. I have young children. I spend a lot of time in parks and, you know, I love my kids. I'm getting to spend an amount of time with them. Usually they're in full-time daycare, you know, so I'm getting to spend all this time with them, right? It's sort of this like lovely, lovely life. Um, but then I'm also living, you know, in this sort of horrific world, especially in mid-March through through mid-May um, and seeing through the eyes of my students, especially who were happened to be very hard hit by the pandemic. Um, and that has to do with with the location in northern New Jersey and the demographics of Rutgers Newark as well. Um, and just getting these sort of, you know, genuine sob story emails literally every day. You know, my grandpa died of COVID. She's out of the country. I can't go to her funeral. Me and my entire family probably have COVID, but we can't get tested. You know, this is a student I haven't heard from in like five weeks who's like failing the course because of that. Um, you know, and then over the summer, obviously, I got to step back a little bit, uh, you know, because I wasn't teaching, but now sort of starting to teach about COVID-19 specifically again. Uh, and, you know, that was my choice, but, you know, I'm having to sort of look this darkness directly in the face day after day. Um, and that's, that's difficult. Can you just layer in for us a little bit of the, what was going on in May and June on campus or in your, in your, backyard there in, in regards to the George Floyd murder, because here we have a second disaster that converges with the the first one. It, you're at Newark. This is a urban campus. I'm sure it was a center of some protest, but maybe not on the campus, but in the city. Can you say a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, the sort of resurgence of the Black Lives Matter stuff, you know, I mean, we all wish that it obviously didn't happen the way it happened with George Floyd and his death and Breonna Taylor and others. Um, but to see it come back, I think, was actually a source of, of excitement for, for many people. I don't recall if we had protests on campus in May and June, but we have definitely had them in the later months of summer. Um, and, you know, I think... I think people feel all different ways about this. I think some people are excited to have something to fight about, you know, and then to sort of see research interest in Black Lives Matter. I think some people are disheartened with the, some of the recent polling data suggests that white America is sort of, you know, there was like a brief surge of interest in May and June and Black Lives Matter, and now it's sort of waning again. Um, you know, but at least we have been able to protest safely, right? I think that that has been somewhat of a silver lining to the situation, but. But in short, yes, this is a huge issue for in Newark and for the community at Rutgers Newark. It's really interesting the way you you described it, almost as sort of living two lives or two streams of consciousness. One, the stream of the home, um, and not being on the subway or not being in public transportation, just all those daily interactions, being tight with family, and then the other stream of consciousness, which is the never-ending newsfeed that we're all that we're all on. Um, Maddie, let me turn to you and, and get a sense of your experience over these last few months as a student. What's it been like for you? Yeah, so Drexel is on a quarter system. So I was in classes in spring quarter and then also summer quarter. So basically throughout this whole time of lockdown, I've been in classes, uh, which has been a good distraction in some ways because it's given me something to do. Um, it's also been nice to be home with my family. Um, but I think 
I, I feel very privileged to have a good setup with like my internet connection and everything like that, but it can be hard um, not being on campus in person and not being surrounded with friends during this time that's supposed to be like the best time of your life in college, like getting all these opportunities and things like that. I was supposed to study abroad and that was canceled, um, which like I said, in the grand scheme of things is not a big deal, but but it can be hard just just reconciling my my thoughts of what this year was going to look like and then and then realizing that none of that's going to happen and everyone's had to deal with that. Um, but overall, it's like like Audrey was saying, it's so nice to spend time with family and then I just reflect on everything this year could have been and then I'm just taking back to this place of like, oh my goodness. Like it, it's hard sometimes to even uh, understand that this is going on. This is like the first uh, disaster I've ever experienced. I was alive in 9-11, but I was only one. So I feel like this is um, the first grand uh, thing that I've ever experienced like this. And I feel like every month there's just a new layer of this disaster that we're, that's unfolding. So um, it's, been, it's been interesting, I guess, to say the least. You're a custom design major at Drexel, which is a very unique program in the sense that you literally curate your own courses. I mean, you you put them together with great thought. Yeah. How, how has how has that been at this time? I mean, I, I know all students, most students take their studies very seriously and they look forward to the classes they take. But I know the custom design majors at Drexel are like each one of them is like specially selected. What it's What's it been like doing the remote learning? Um, well, just first talking about custom design, my major incorporates public health um, and psychology and biology and criminology, but especially public health, I uh, just being thrown into this pandemic is something that I, I've never thought that I was, would experience. Um, so it's been interesting in my public health classes, uh, learning about like what we can do going forward and just changing how, how we're taught and then also I was able to take the COVID class with you, Professor Knowles, which was super interesting. And as a custom design student, I was able to take that class. Um, but in terms of just um, the online learning, it's it's hard because in some regards, I feel like I'm not learning as much in some of my classes. Uh, we don't even have lectures that are face-to-face. -face, so it's all like you do everything on your own and there's like open book exams. So it's just, you're not getting as much out of your education if you don't put in the effort um, and it can be hard at home to do that. Um, but I'm, I'm thankful for my major because I'm able to take all classes pretty much that I'm super interested in, super invested in learning. So that's helped me stay focused on my studies during this time. One more quick thing, your theater minor, were you supposed to be in any productions at this time? Uh, we were supposed to do something in the spring um, and then we had to cancel most of the shows for 2021. Uh, we're hoping to do one in the spring, but I don't know. But I was actually involved in a theater uh, devising project over the summer where we created a whole show over Zoom. Uh, so it's it's cool that theater is going to keep going, even though it's it's hard because the whole idea of theater is that it's live wow. and in. But but yeah, okay. it was that was a cool experience to to do that um, over Zoom. Yeah. Wow, amazing! Thank you for that, Teresa. I guess the same question to you. What's your I, I, I don't know how to ask you even to summarize such a thing, but 
you know, what have been the headlines for you over these last few months? Um, well, I got very, very ill on March 1st and had a really scary experience where I lived the testing shortage. So I was severely ill and ended up in the ER and couldn't get a test to save my life because I didn't have a first degree connection and I had not traveled either. At that time, they were only uh, testing people who had either traveled to China or Italy. And I hadn't done either. And I didn't have any known direct contact with the patient. So um, they gave me flu tests, they gave me strep tests, but they couldn't give me a COVID test. And I just was completely unwell for about six weeks. And so it threw me into this really interesting trajectory through this pandemic where I was obviously reading about it. And for those of you who don't know me, like this is what I do, I study viruses, I study global health networks. So here I was living the worst case scenario in real time throughout this thing and seeing, so like getting a live view of the, the breakdown. So of course, me being me, I spent some time talking to the um, emergency room doctors who told me privately that they felt completely underprepared. So this was right before everything started to ramp up in New York, it was on the cusp and, and they knew it was coming and they, they said, you know, off the record, we know that some of us are gonna die. We know that we're gonna watch people die. And unlike in 2009, during the influenza pandemic where they felt they were overprepared, they felt completely underprepared. So that was a very strange March and April for me. Um, eventually I did get better. Um, Turns out I did not. Oh, and I should mention too that I, I'm a high risk person. So that's been interesting. Um, I have a very rare genetic blood disorder that means that I'm prone to clotting, which as you know, like one of the, the um, things that is most of concern of the symptoms is that people are having blood clots, like the COVID is causing development of blood clots in the lungs specifically and other extremities. So I'm at high risk. So that's been interesting about, you know, I've had this very personal relationship to navigating risk, especially as we started loosening up and opening up a little bit more, like really needing to decide how comfortable I felt going out and mingling with people or like just even going to the grocery store. So that's been interesting. And then, of course, as everyone's mentioned, like Black Lives Matter, the movement began again in earnest and I'm here in Brooklyn in the heart of Crown Heights, which is a historically important area in Brooklyn, um, the site of many protests in the 90s. And it was very vibrant here. Like there were a lot of protests on a day-to-day -day basis going past my apartment. Um, really, I could hear it every night. Um, I could see it. I participated a little bit as much as I felt safe. So that was going on. And I guess, oh, you can hear a siren. <laughs> Speaking of, and it was intense and it felt intense. It felt like I was living through history. So I spent all of this time in my career reading about pandemics and reading about, you know, the, the multiple, the mushroom cloud that happens around pandemics and social unrest. And I talked to my students about it and, and here I was literally living it. And that was a very strange experience and it's been really hard to focus 
on anything that's not this. So I hear I'm supposed to be writing about allergies and allergies for like, it just don't seem that important all things considered. Of course they are and they deeply matter to people who have them, self-included, but suddenly it's been really hard to stay focused on anything not happening since so much has been hitting us. So you were just, you were doing like autoethnography. Basically. In the, in the ER. Yeah. I had the whole nine. I had the chest x-rays. They gave me the immunosuppressant drugs. I mean, I had the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, thank you for sharing that story. It's also been one that, um, you know, for obvious reasons, we've had there's so many different angles on the pandemic, but the one that we have not heard as much is the actual experience of the sufferer the experience of the survivor and the experience inside the clinic, the experience in in the emergency department. Um, and still even now, you know, there are sort of people out there who are in the medical communication circuit and we hear from them constantly. But I think unlike other disasters where we would hear a lot from sufferers and survivors um, and technicians and practitioners, this has been strange. So you were in it like literally mm -hmm. in it in that in that regard yeah um audrey let me let me come to you uh maddie was sharing a little bit of her experience what it was like to to imagine her curriculum uh, uh, see her curriculum and then see it go up online Let, let's look at that from the instructor's perspective what was it like you for you to take your classes up online so, I mean, it, it was difficult, I would say, um, you know, spring and fall term were, you know, are, are very different to me. I mean, you know, in spring, we were all midway through a semester. No one had signed up for online learning. At Rutgers Newark, our student body is socioeconomically fairly diverse. And to accommodate that, we were directed uh, to, if at all possible, mm -hmm. do asynchronous you know, for the online stuff. So I'm, 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 you know, being asked to go literally overnight from teaching a course, you know, in-person lecturing every, you know, twice a week to completely asynchronous content, right? And, you know, the, this announcement came less than 24 hours before I was going to give a midterm, which I then couldn't give. It, it was not one I could transfer online. Um, so there, you know, I, I mean, it was a crisis mode and I sort of did what I could. I ended up doing like TikTok videos for my students, like explaining stuff in like 59 second sound bites, right? Like keep it a little peppy, um, so on and so forth. For the fall semester, you know, I've obviously had, had more time to plan. I had the summer to plan this. Um, and so something that Teresa was saying really resonated with me, this idea that, you know, you can't get your mind off of this. You can't think about anything else. And I was set to teach history of Hinduism in the fall. That's a sort of, you know, standard course for me. I've taught it before. I'll teach it again. Um, and I just, I thought about sitting there reading old Sanskrit text, which is what I've spent 20 years of my life doing. Like I really love and care about it, but I, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it in this moment. Um, and so that's why I decided to teach about, about COVID-19. Um, and so that's, that's how sort of this archiving COVID-19 course uh, sort of came, came about. Oh, can I add one Let more me, thing? Yeah, please. So I'm, I'm also teaching like a large scale lecture course on South Asian history, another normal course for me this term. And so one of my strategies uh, was sort of to lean into the online thing. 
and do like, as I see it, the one thing that I can do with online learning that I can't do with in-person, which is to bring in like a crazy number of visitors from literally all over the world. So I have, I have 12 different people visiting my class, um, experts from India, Pakistan, Australia, and across the United States, which I could never do. I can't get these people to come to Newark, right? In, in normal life, right. but pop into a Zoom class, that's, that's no problem, so. That's an, that's, that's an interesting feature. And I've seen, you know, if you're on Twitter, it's not uncommon for somebody to say, I'm an expert in this, or I just published. If you want me to pop, pop into your class for 10 minutes, I'm happy to do it. Which, as you said, Audrey, is like usually completely impossible. Um, not that it would have been technologically impossible for us to do it before, but we just didn't have the mind. It wasn't in our, in our mind, I don't think. Um, let me just, um, Teresa, the same sort of question of getting your, material, you know, whatever sort of format you were going to get into to teach it um, for the spring, summer, and thinking about the fall, what kinds of, what has that meant for you? Um, so, well, I got sick, so there was this gap, right? So I really couldn't physically teach for about two weeks, two to three weeks. I was just out of it. So they were going through the online Canvas shell on their own, basically, without the lectures. And so when I came back, um, I asked them, luckily I was teaching medical humanities and I was teaching a new class that um, I was running as kind of a, a exploratory class called Failure 101. And it was all about social failures. And so I asked both of those classes since the subject matter made sense, do you want to throw out the syllabus we have and I will entirely redirect towards what is happening now. And something that surprised me was it was an overwhelming majority wanted to do COVID. They wanted to throw out the syllabus and redesign based on COVID. So what I did was I looked at the themes and the types of things that we were discussing and I just applied them to COVID-19. So if we were gonna talk about scientific communication, then we were talking about scientific communication vis-a-vis COVID-19. And I kind of had to scramble and I ended up doing 800,000 hours more work <laughs> than I would have if we had just stuck with the old syllabus. But I felt it was important for all of us to grapple with this very traumatic thing that, as Audrey was saying, I mean, we were the red bubble. Like we were getting hit and we were getting hit hard. They had all, by the time I came back online, they had all been sent home. We knew that we were going to be online for the rest of the term. And so in a sense, it helped them feel a, a, a sense of control that, I, or a sense of like, okay, at least I can do this. At least I can learn about what is happening and feel like I have information and knowledge and that seemed to help them with the transition and seemed to help them with actually living through it. So that's that's what I did. And how much of the time was unstructured? Did you find that you needed more unstructured time just to let conversation expand or did you try to keep it in sort of more narrow confines of you know pedagogy that you might have already developed? We did a lot of group breakouts. So we were on Zoom. Um, we tried to do synchronous. It was, we were asked to try to do synchronous. So we did 
Luckily for me, I didn't have any international students, so no one was getting up at 3 a.m. to attend my classes. So we did do synchronous, but we broke out into, so I would give them a problem set. Um, like I would have them research um, the reproductive number of COVID. So I would have them look at all these different RO numbers. And then we would, I would ask them, why is this hard to know? So that we would like, work through an actual problem that was happening in real time and then talk about all the social, cultural, political, economic factors that made that knowledge tricky. Um, and that seemed to work, but I really always felt like I was behind the eight ball, so to speak, like you're constantly rushing to catch up to what you're doing. But it helped me too, because like I said, I couldn't focus on anything else. So it was kind of good but at least I could funnel my energy and my own desire to know about what was happening into the design of the class. So mm. what I wanted to know is what we all ended up plowing through. And it turned, I think it turned out all right. The valuations at the end of the semester were decent. Mm -hmm. Like Stevens at Drexel, we were, as faculty, we were encouraged um, strongly to go to synchronous we, we went all online and the goal was to go synchronous it very interesting audrey just that the different socioeconomic perspective of a drexel student a stevens student and a rutgers newark student on average probably um it was really interesting to hear you say that they wanted you to be asynchronous um online but we did that i've been teaching online since 2003 or four um back to the really dark ages of Blackboard. Uh, and you can imagine Blackboard being like when Blackboard was worse like that. I mean, uh, it was really something. I mean, these were, and this was like, you know, you would do a PowerPoint presentation and put it up and you have like some kind of a recorded lecture or something like that. That's what online education cutting edge at that time was. But I had already overcome the fear of that a long time ago and experimented with various different sort of modes of um, online pedagogy. So, you know, um, I guess I didn't quite have that fear and I'm a department head in the history department and um, maybe only one or two of the other faculty had taught online. And I don't know, I can't generalize about history, um, but well, maybe I will. History, historians, it, how, how do I put this diplomatically? We're not always the first to adopt a new technology, let's put it that way. Um, and so it was for some of our faculty, there was no complaints, but I could, they were really working hard to try to, and it wasn't just, I think there's been a lot of emphasis of, uh, in the writing I've, about it, like the mechanical aspects, like a, the labor, like to take this and turn it into that. I think for some of our faculty, it was much more that they were struggling to learn how to, how to capture that experience of the classroom, which is hard to quantify that, but you know when it's working, both as a teacher and a student, like we're creating something here that's not in the syllabus, it's happening. And I think there was a lot of anxiety around that. Um, I was co-teaching a course with my colleague, Tiago Sariva, and on Lewis and Clark. The course was about Lewis and Clark, but also about Sacagawea and York, who was the slave on the Lewis and Clark expedition. So this, is, this course is Lewis and Clark in the Anthropocene. 
And we were going to be spending a lot of time at the Academy of Natural Sciences. Our plan was to take the class and go to Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. There were all these elements to it, which we then had to kind of do virtually. And watching the video from the Chamber of Commerce of Harpers Ferry is not as good as like going and and standing there and imagining yourself there during the John Brown raid. So we had some ups and downs in that regard. Maddie, let me come back to you. Um, how did learning for you change or how has it changed? If you can speak to that. I found that the synchronous classes that I've been in have been much more impactful than the asynchronous ones. In the spring, most of my classes were asynchronous. So then it just felt like it was all on me to do everything and to create my own schedule because I didn't have like a set routine of going to class at like 11. Um, so then in the in the summer, most of my classes were synchronous. Uh, so that was much more beneficial. Um, and I found that like once I got used to it, which now I think I have really got used to online learning, just figuring out like I'm going to do work now, but this is going to be time with my family, like making that that work-life balance has been super helpful in, in making my what I'm learning in class more impactful just so I don't feel so overwhelmed because there isn't much to do other than schoolwork for me uh, during during the spring and summer. So it just felt like it was a lot at some times, but then making that, that, that balance was good. Um, and going off of something that Audrey said, some of my classes brought in some interesting speakers, which was really cool. Um, and in the fall, I'm gonna be taking a musical theater class with a Broadway actress, which is something that could have never happened before. So I think there are some definite pros to online learning, um, but it's taken some time to realize that those are there. Because in the beginning, it was a harsh adjustment. Um, I know more so for professors who had to completely switch what they were teaching, because I just have to show up to class. But yeah, it's been an adjustment, but I think now I'm pretty much used to it. So let's, let's shift our conversation. I just want to remind everybody you're listening to COVID calls, and today we're talking about uh, teaching and learning COVID-19 in higher education. So we've all been teaching it, um, or we're about to. We've all been learning about it. Um, as I taught a course on COVID-19 over the summer, and Maddie was a student in that, in that course. So let's talk about some of the unique challenges of this. I had a professor when I was in... Uh, uh, an undergraduate at the University of North Texas, who um, said uh, in such a way that you could not argue with him, everything after the French Revolution is journalism. And, uh, you know, he really believed that. And and maybe he was, he was an eccentric guy and quite brilliant. But, you know, there is this sense in which you can't possibly do history in the middle of things. That's not good practice. Um, so let's dive into this. Audrey, let me bring you in first on this, your thoughts on what it means to try to teach something historical as it's happening. 
So I told my students on the first day of our archiving COVID-19 class that we're trying to bring a sort of presentist viewpoint to, to the study of history. Um, the problem being, of course, that presentist is like a real dirty word for historians, uh, right? Um, but I was like, look, it is, it is what it is, folks, right? Like we are living through the pandemic. We don't know the end of the story yet. Um, and I don't want to just wait 30 years or, I don't know, 200 plus years for, you know, your French, you know, sorry, guy um, to, to, to analyze this. You know, I'm always telling students and, you know, and everyone who will listen and many people who won't listen um, that, you know, the, the tools of historical method are valuable, not just for the study of the past, but for like everything, right? Like if you want to be a thoughtful, critical thinking person in the world, right? You need historical method, even if you don't, you know, call it that. And this is sort of an opportunity to demonstrate that. Obviously, we set out to do the impossible, right? How can you, how can you ever understand the historical moment that you're living through when it's not, it's not even over yet, right? Uh, maybe it hasn't even really begun. Like, we may still be at the very beginning of this pandemic, right? Like, I mean, we just, we don't know. So you have that humility. But I think one thing that we can do is we can leverage the advantages that we have, right? Uh, in, in sort of normal life, which we're really far from normal life right now, but in normal life, I study the 12th through the early 18th centuries. And I would, I would give my right arm to have the sorts of historical documents that people are producing now, right? First person journal accounts. We have a sort of proliferation of online archives of you know, what, what life is like for different kinds of people living through the pandemic in different parts of the world, different walks of life. I would love to have that for like 15th century India, um, and we don't have it. But now, because we're living through this moment, we have an opportunity to produce the source of materials that historians will love someday. Um, and so for me in teaching archiving COVID-19, it's sort of a two-pronged approach, right? Like we are, we're creating, my students and I are creating a set of online archives, including journals, material objects, oral history interviews, so on and so forth, that will be of benefit to future historians. And we're also trying to sort of bring the presentist viewpoint, right? Because it does matter what it looks like when we're living through it. Even if we don't get the sort of final say, of course, of you know how the history of this period is written, doesn't mean we can't have a voice in it. And so what was your students' reaction to being told that they were um, literally the subjects of their own study for the course? Honestly, it was a really interesting reaction. Um, so they they became really uncomfortable with it. And I had several students be like, well, wait, what, you know, especially with the journals. I'm having my students and I'm doing this with them. We're, we're all journaling minimum of three times a week for the next four months. Um, and my students were like, wait a minute, what if someone reads these journals like 30 years from now and like misunderstands what we were saying? You know, what if, what if they're malicious? What if the meaning of a word has changed? Like a million things can happen. And my response was, this is what we do to other people all the time. Like, this is what historians do. We look back at like evidence and, you know, try to understand it the best that we can. Um, so I think sort of, there was sort mm -hmm. of an instantaneous recognition of the ethics of, of history and the importance mm -hmm. of that, because it looks really different when you're on the other side of that fence. Wow, that's interesting. Teresa, can, can I bring you in on this too? How you're thinking about teaching something in, in the middle of it. And I just want to underline again, your unique perspective as a, as a person who's survived and suffered through this time, that also puts you 
I mean, your story, it's, you're starting out with a compelling story to begin with, but then you have to explain why you said you were compelled to teach it, but say yeah. more about, about how you're viewing it. Well, so I'm an anthropologist, so we don't have the same problem of, you know, we're supposed to be in the present moment and we're supposed to be studying in media rest. So you're jumping into the middle of something and you're trying to make sense of it. I think our problems have been um, the flip side of what Audrey was just saying, I, the, the overwhelming amount of data that we have. So, you know, the importance of understanding individual perspectives is what anthropologists do, you know, looking like interviews, like deeply spending time on in a community with people, understanding how they think about something. Right now, it's really hard to get purchase on that because it's so present. And there's not a lot of way of like anthropologists are always talking about the need to be reflexive, right? Like you have to get some sort of distance, analytical distance between yourself and your subject, as hard as that is. And knowing knowing you can't get subjectivity out of the water, but kind of trying to anyway. And that's just been impossible. Like how can you get any kind of distance, analytical or emotional, when you yourself as a researcher are living through it? So that has been some of the challenge for me is just where to begin. Like what, I mean, how do you even know what's important right now? I mean, what's important kind of is a shifting and change. Like, so what I did um, this summer, I was like, well, okay, I gotta do something. What the hell am I gonna do? I, I study pandemics, I can't let this moment go. So I had two students from different parts of the country. They, they were home in their areas. One was West Virginia and one was Florida. And they were collecting snowball interviews. We just had a couple of random questions about people's experience of the pandemic. And so they were trying to get people who had experienced the illness, people who had lost people, people who hadn't lost anything and were just annoyed. Like, so they were trying to collect as much as possible and kind of coding that later and trying to find what was important and what people were saying. So that, I, I tried to do that and also constructing a, a detailed timeline. One of the problems is so much is happening and has been happening that I feel like there's a sense of which if you go back to December and January, so I had a student using an interactive web tool um, called Time Glider who started in China and just did a meticulous timeline of everything that happened and people's reactions to China. And then he did Italy and he did Australia and then he did Washington state all mm -hmm. summer. So mm -hmm. you can kind of compare who was doing what at what points through time. And I think that's important, especially in the early days because things were coming at us so fast, especially in the beginning that there's some confusion about what actually happened. So in a sense, I almost feel like as an anthropologist, I've had to be kind of a, a historian of January. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Just January, like, because it almost feels like 10 years ago, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, it really does feel like a million years ago. And already, I remember after 9-11 happened, do you remember that fascinating, I don't remember who did it, sociologists maybe, 
who did the survey and they did it in like the week after the events and people had already gotten the timeline wrong. Do you remember this, that they were asked to like, what happened first, what happened second? And, and even just a week later, people couldn't put it in the right order. It had gotten all meshed into one thing. And I think something very similar happened in the early days of this pandemic. So for me, I've been spending a lot of time there, like intellectually and, and with students, like trying to go back to December, January, February, early March to kind of see like what happened, because I do think we have enough analytical distance from that. But if you ask me what I think is going to be important or what themes or what have we learned, who knows? I feel like I won't be able to answer that question for five years. I don't know what is important right now because I feel like it's happening and I could take a stab at it, but I feel like I'm going to be wrong. And the last thing I want to do is go back on CNN to say that I was wrong again. I already did that once. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do that again. So I'm very hesitant mm. to make claims about what this means. But I feel like in the academic community, there's a real pressure that we're all feeling to tell people what this means. Mm. And I keep trying to advocate for slow scholarship in this, mm. which is really hard because people it feels urgent to say something, but I feel so nervous about that. But the, you know, to me, there's so much in what we're talking about here. One thing that's as I've taken from anthropology, and I work closely with Kim Fortune, who's an anthropologist who works on disaster and toxics. And I remember once I was uh, after Hurricane uh, Harvey, I went down to Houston, and she and I were going to do a series of interviews with with people together and I got there before she did. I just drove around and I was taking notes. And when I met up with her, I, she said, well, what have you been doing? I said, oh, just driving around, taking notes. She's like, field work, you were doing field work. Like I had not understood, as you said, Teresa, it's just sort of like, well, I'm in the middle of something and there is a value to just being off kilter and confused. But I think, you know, that historical training dies hard. I mean, I was looking for the archives. I wanted to make the archive. When the archive, the making of the archive was the interview. That was the formal part. We were going to go in the room with the, and, and that was the making of what I thought will be consulted 30 years from now. Um, but it turns out, and this is something I've learned from anthropologist colleagues and people I, I read, is that there's tremendous value I'm finding methodologically to being okay with that confusion, but also maybe that the archive needs to reflect that too. And Andre, let me bring that back to you. I mean, maybe it's, you know, the, with the diversification of voices, which is a process that's only just begun in history, I think, we do move away from the omniscient narrator of history. We move away from the idea that things made sense into the people in the time that they were living it. I wanted to sort of bring that back to you. It seems the way you described your class, it's really you're pushing back on some of the sort of standard methodological canons of history too, that, that we can make the archive while living it. Any reflections about time and the archive as you're, as you're teaching, thinking about teaching? Sure. So 
I think I think that my my training as as a South Asia historian uh, probably actually has a lot to do with this. Um, where we're a bit in South Asia history, we're like significantly further down the road of like there is no objectivity, right? This sort of like imaginary white man of the nineteenth yeah. century, and like that's like that's what we called objective, right? It was always right. subjective. It was just one type of subjectivity, um, which is not to say that we abandon historical truth, but to understand that you know sort of there's it's a little complicated, right? Um, and so, so I think perhaps that just makes me a little bit more open than than you know historians of other sorts, you know, other areas of focus maybe um, to to documenting the present. Um, and as I said, I just I also think that the subjectivity can be can be an advantage, right? There's an advantage in, as Teresa put it, not knowing what's important yet, mm. right? You know, in I mean, maybe maybe we're trying to do different things. And I'm not trying to say what's important about this moment. Like, we're not going to know that for like 100 years. Um, but sometimes what people think is important now, especially the people in power, right? And the, the records that we know and the voices that we know will be preserved. A lot of times they get that wrong, right? And it's other stuff that was actually important. And that's where a bunch of undergraduate and graduate college students in Newark can actually really make a big difference, right? Because they bring a different set of perspectives to it. So over the summer, Maddie uh, and I were in this class uh, together and one of the assignments, the closing assignment was to, to do interviews. Maddie, I don't know if you wanna talk a little bit about what that, that process was like for you. Again, it was an attempt to um, empower us to kind of make the historical record, but in the forming of the questions, that gets to kind of Teresa and Audrey's point, which I take very well, which is how do we even know what questions we should be asking at this time? And what if we, you have 30 minutes with a person, what if you asked all the wrong things and we didn't capture what was important about this moment? I mean, I really sweat that kind of stuff when I'm thinking about interviews. What was your approach, Maddie? Well, I, so I interviewed two of my friends. So I guess that was my first approach, which is interviewing people who I knew I was going to be comfortable with and who uh, I, I sort of going into it, I, I knew what I wanted to get out of it. And I also like prep them with questions too, which was helpful. But I interviewed uh, my friend Greg, who is an entertainment and arts management major um, specializing in theater. And then my friend Jane, who is a TV and uh, film studies major. So I knew I wanted to focus on the entertainment industry and how that has been affected during this time. And then, uh, so all my questions were structured around that. And so because they had this background in their studies um, and were both taking classes during the spring and summer during this time and having discussions with their professors about the future of their fields that they're going into, um, that was super helpful. Uh, and I, I guess the whole process was, was beneficial, uh, the class and also the interviews and just understanding this time and like looking back on January and February um, feels so long ago. Uh, so just trying to get a better understanding of what has happened um, and then doing those interviews is, is super cool and just contributing to Drexel's archives and being able to hopefully years from now look back and try to understand like where I was mentally, where my friends were mentally and then looking at what has happened since then. Uh, the class was super fun. <laughs> I'm really happy I took it just so that I have that that piece of information that I can always look back on um, to remember this time. Can you say a little bit more about, you know, when you were doing the interviews, were there surprises or things that were, um, what was surprising and not surprising, I guess, as you do those 
as you did those discussions. I mean, I do interviews every day with people about COVID and I like every single COVID call I do, I come away with things that I wouldn't have thought of. I, I wonder what your, what your experience was. Sure. Um, with my friend Jane, she's the, the film and TV studies major. Um, I asked both of them actually like what their, their interaction with the news, like how has that changed? Just like as an opening question. And I, it's really interesting be, in talking to her because I uh, just perceived just from my, uh, how I get the news, like I use social media a lot, uh, just because that's what I'm on every day to get the news. Um, but she, like talking about how since, uh, I found this really interesting, since the 2016 election, she's been so much more um, in tune with what's been going on because uh, because of the outcome of that election and how uh, she wanted to be more uh, just in the know about how she as one person can make a difference in, in uh, in like in our society, I guess if that makes sense. So I, that was something I wasn't expecting just from from a college student for her to to have been so mm -hmm. invested in that. I don't know if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Um, mm -hmm. But I nothing super surprising from from the understanding of the entertainment industry. Just like they were they were put on hold, like so many other uh, agencies were. So uh, yeah, they were just both talking about how both film and then theater really have to to hopefully bounce back from this and mm -hmm. it's so hard on on artists and creatives who who go into fields that are already super unstable considered compared to other fields mm -hmm. so um they were they're hopeful that things would hopefully get back to normal soon enough that those people get jobs again and can create again yeah the class was structured as a month by month so this was a, a seminar that met once a week and so each week was a month, basically. That's the way we approached it. So we started the class in June, in January, if you will. And then as week by week, we, we and it, eventually the class meetings intersected with the present. And, you know, just to, to um, reiterate some of what you've all been saying, uh, when I set out to prepare material about January and February, I discovered things um, that I had either known and had they had gotten swamped or I saw them very differently somehow. And so again, this compression of time issue was one that gave me confidence pedagogically because I did feel like I could get some critical vantage point, particularly on sort of late December and into January that I, that I wasn't expecting to have. Now I prepare to be chastised by that confidence later, and that's fine. But at least for the purposes of bringing it into a classroom, I felt okay about that. And I think the Maddie, you can correct me, but I think we had really, I, what I thought were some of our best discussions were really about the earlier period, the January and February period, maybe because people hadn't been paying much attention. It wasn't on their radar yet in the United States. I don't, I don't know. Teresa, your experience on this, in this line? I wanted to say like, so I remember as a graduate student, one of the scariest things about being a new anthropology graduate student is this idea that you're gonna go out to the field and you're gonna spend 12 to 18 months there. And I remember um, Iwa Ong, who is a very famous anthropologist, um, they had this thing where all the, all the old school, like really well-known anthropologists would come in and talk to us. And I remember her saying, well, around three months in, you'll have your first breakdown. 
And I remember thinking, what? And she, But it, it turned out to be such good advice because what she was trying to get across is when things are happening to you. So as an anthropologist, when and right now things are happening to all of us. And she, what she was trying to get us primed for is you go into the field with this set of assumptions, right? And what the world does is constantly contradicts them and changes them and you feel like you're doing nothing. And so you're collecting all this data and you don't know what you have and you have many breakdowns the whole time you're in the field. And she said, you'll have three weeks to collect the data at the end of your time because you'll finally know what it's about. Right before you leave, you'll figure out what you've been doing. And I remember thinking, God, that sounds depressing. Why have I chosen this as a female? <laughs> but I think that is really something to think about right now. Like, I, I don't know how you guys feel, but like I often am getting overwhelmed and I have in the back of my mind, okay, I'm just having a breakdown. But having faith that at some point you'll stumble upon what this is about. And it'll be in some way like, and she said, just collect everything, collect things you don't even know you think you'll need, like menus, flyers, like newspapers, like just take everything that's happening to you and act like it's important because you won't know what it means until later. And she was right. And so I, I keep trying to keep that in mind right now as we're all busy trying to make some sense of this is that eventually we will find our path through all of this, but there are gonna be breakdowns. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, there's a sort of disarming, again, back to some of the themes we've touched on, there's a, dis, a disarming sort of reversal of the normal power dialogue in higher education that you're describing there, Teresa. And I, I wanted to get to that, you know, because by, presenting to students that you're literally figuring something out while you're teaching it is a bit of a leap of faith for students to run with you on this because we generally believe well we're the masters of a subject that's why we're here that's that's why you hired me that's why the student takes the takes the class i want to talk a little bit more about that because there's a trust that's involved and there's a, a relational aspect of this audrey can you can you speak to that about how you you've thought about that, keeping trust with students in taking this unconventional approach to teaching something that's happening? So I feel like every way that I sort of cultivated relationships with students before the pandemic has been smashed and destroyed on the rocks of the pandemic. Um, I always kept a sort of certain professional distance, you know, I don't know. I don't even have pictures of my kids in my office. Like it, it's just who I am. Um, and, and that's like completely gone. Like I regularly hold office hours, my kids jumping on my bed in the background, literally. Um, so, you know, sort of following on that, um, teaching an unconventional course now, I've, I've just taken a very different approach um, and I'm not afraid to sort of say what I don't know and when I don't know it. So I think the most sort of visible way uh, that this has come out in the archiving COVID-19 course is that I didn't write the entire syllabus, which I've never not done before, um, because 
like, how can I write a syllabus that goes into mid-December? Like, that's insane. Like, who knows what's going to be happening by then? So starting in about, starting in late October, the readings, like, there start to be a lot of, like, to be announced and to be determined on the syllabus. And then in sort of mid, early to mid-November, I, I just have a note on the syllabus. I think I called it pedagogy note. And I just say, look, I'm writing the syllabus in August of 2020, and I have no idea where we're going to be as individuals, as a university, as society, as a nation at this point, you know, when we get to early to mid-November 2020. Uh, and so when, when we get closer and I have a better sense, I'll write the rest of the syllabus. Maddie, I did the same thing. How did you feel about that? You're not gonna hurt my feelings, Actually, by the way, if you say, I really wish you'd had the readings to us a little bit further in advance, because <laughs> it was sometimes a little bit last minute and I will totally cop to that. And a couple of students called me on it. They're like, we really wish you'd give us a little bit more head start. Like, but yeah, but I can't even predict by the next meeting, it's a week from now. And I got caught up in that a couple of times. And I'm not sure, I wonder if the, if the pedagogy didn't suffer a little bit, Maddie, you're free to speak. So <laughs> please tell us how you felt about it. Um, well, I think it, like I, I knew what I was signing up for as a, COVID class that it was going to be evolving. And I think I found that really engaging actually that each week we were being given new materials from the current times that we were experiencing. So so I, I actually like that. Uh, perhaps not best for time management, but that's okay. Usually I do it right before anyway. So so it was nice that everything was, was current, yeah. So, you know, again, keeping with this idea of the iterative syllabus and, and things growing as they go. I still try to spend some time thinking about what a COVID-19 curriculum would look like. And, I, and I'd have to freeze that in time in June, even though there were changes along the way. I would just share a couple of things that, I, that ended up being, I thought they would be impactful and I think they did end up being impactful. One was um, Daniel Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year um, which was published in 1722. And, and the reason I liked that one was that um, it, was, uh, it was deep in history. It was a pandemic that most Americans don't know much about, a time period in a part of the world most Americans have heard of, but may not know much, much about, 17th century London. But it also pushed back on this idea that the role of history, so like I think all of our guests here who are professors have been asked by media at this time, what do we learn from history to help us make sense of this moment? And often what they want are actionable items that will affect policy. And I can't, I like being, I like that they trust us to ask us those questions, but I found myself more frequently saying, I'm not sure what the answer is to your question there in terms of policy, but I am sure that we find a lot in the reservoir of history about how people have coped with loss and fear and anger in the midst of a disaster. So the Defoe really worked. Um, and then um, using the COVID calls as primary source material that students watched because it was very much, I mean, they were watching these kinds of back and forth discussions with people figuring things out in the moment, which to me felt pretty honest about this time. And we particularly, um, the one that I keep going back to is to Hannibal Johnson's discussion about the Tulsa massacre, which we recorded on Juneteenth, just before Trump gave his speech there in Tulsa. And the other one was Peter Chin Hong, a doctor in San Francisco, talking about struggles of doctors and public health officials in the middle of the Black Lives Matter movement 
and their pressure put on them to give public health advice when people were moving into the streets to protest. So I just wanted to throw those out as a couple of things that I had used as sort of what you might consider core curriculum. Maybe we can do a lightning round here and each person could say one or two things that they are leaning on this time at this time as sources. Teresa, do you have something? Um, I tend to, to teach um, John Barry's The Great Influenza a lot. I think that's such a great book um, for the last really big pandemic. And um, it has a lot of points in it that we can draw upon for what's going on now. So that, I mean, obviously always can lose the plague. I mean, if you're going the fictional route, right? Um, that's a good go-to, but also just paying attention to like, um, I have students kind of mine Twitter or mine TikTok, like, you know, to try to do their own real-time analysis of what's going on. Like how are people like flashpoints? Like, how are you, uh, how are people talking about the pandemic this week? Because it changes, right? Like it's, it was more serious and now people are starting to make fun of it a lot more. So it changes almost on a daily basis. So trying to keep um, the history in conversation with the hashtags. Audrey, can I turn to you on this? Sure. So uh, I'm I'm using a, in as my teaching in a, a couple of different episodes from uh, Intersectionality Matters by Kimberly Crenshaw, um, which which I like. You know, I mean, it's it's like it's available as both a podcast and like a sort of YouTube video -y thing. So it's something you can watch, you can listen, um, and it, it tends to bring in larger issues about the pandemic. She also mm. she has she has really interesting guests. Um, the uh, yeah, what what else would I, Matt? Um, another thing. I don't know if I have a specific reading on this. I, I have several, um, but I'm very interested in the words we use is building on what Teresa said and sort of the language we use to talk about the pandemic, right? They're, like there's a lot of war imagery, like we're fighting the virus and this, yeah. this sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, I don't know if the specific reading matters, but I think drawing student attention to that. Um, I I've, have seen student eyes light up at that where it's just like, oh, I never thought to think about the metaphors. Um, and, I, and I think that's actually very critical. Maddie, let me ask you the same thing, either from the class you took or other classes or other things you've been reading, what would you put in a COVID-19 curriculum? I found the, the COVID calls episode super helpful, not only because of the, the different people you talk to and all the experts and professors, but also how they themselves are an archive of the time. So like we listened to an episode from April and there was a comment about how Trump wanted to open everything up by oh, yeah. Easter, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, that was a thing yeah. if that happened." <laughs> I forgot about. So yeah, those I love listening to the to the podcast just because uh, there's so many things to pull from to to understand what's going on. So we're almost up on time. I really enjoyed this conversation. In fact, I've overstayed my guest time, but but maybe we can just do a, just a, a lightning round here to get a sense um, from people of what about this approach to teaching and learning that is taking it in the moment, taking something that's literally shaping our world and bringing it in the classroom. How much of this do you think is going to stick when we go back to normal times? We keep hearing that we're at an inflection point. I, I've tried to stop using that term because it, it, I don't know how many inflection points you can have in five months. Um, but this is something I'm thinking a lot about, you know, how is this going to really 
um, change pedagogy for the rest of our careers, maybe? What parts of this are we gonna take away once the vaccine happens and we're back in classes? And, and in what ways do you think we'll go back to some sort of way we were before January? It's an almost impossible question, but Teresa, could you take a, a run at it? Um, I am never gonna be the same professor again, for sure. And I learned a lot from going on record in February saying that this was not gonna be a big deal. And then I got sick and the whole thing blew up in everybody's face. And from what I took from that was like, and then I went on CNN and I had the Chiron said, couldn't have been more wrong next to my name. <laughs> and so what I took from that is actually, um, I, as a professor, I'm much more open about what I don't know and the process of, of how I think through things I don't know. And I wasn't always transparent about that with them. I would present things and I would present maybe different perspectives, but I personally wouldn't walk them through my own doubts or my own, how do I figure something out? And so I think every time I teach, I'm going to do more of that. I'm gonna do more of um, how this is a process and a toolkit that I use too. And it's not a bunch of, here's what you need to memorize. Not that I ever did too much of that. Maddie, let me ask you the same question from the student's perspective. Um, what are you gonna, how has this changed you as a, a learner and eventually I'm sure as a teacher at some level yourself? I think it just reinforced how much I wanna continue to take interdisciplinary classes because um, until taking the COVID class, I didn't realize how there were so many different facets of the disaster, like the pandemic with COVID, but then also uh, socially with Black Lives Matter and then the economic down, like it's all connected. So just um, taking classes that will continue to to inspire me to to realize that that interconnectedness. Yeah. I would just echo that. I, I would not back away myself from uh, doing courses like this and, and intentionally interdisciplinary courses. And in the first 10 years after September 11, I thought I taught at John Jay College with uh, Charles Strozier, colleague of mine, we taught a 9-11 class three times. We taught it in 2004, 2007, and 2011. I think I've got that right. And um, then in the, by the third time we taught it, we reflected a lot on the difference between how teaching it looked from 2004 to 2007. So I think I'm gonna be teaching a COVID class once a year now. That's what I'd like to do, because I think you then build up a sort of body of iterative, that I think there's something quite interesting, which can be quite pedagogically helpful on how we're gonna see it differently over those, over those years, but it won't be disciplinary. I don't see how it, how it can be. Just answering my own question. Audrey, I think the last word to you on this. Until two minutes ago, I had given no thought whatsoever to ever teaching archiving COVID-19 again. Um, I guess I just assumed it would be like a one-shot thing. I don't know. Maybe I should reteach it. The whole 9-11 class thing, that's very interesting. Um, so I don't know. Um, but just like a couple of things I like, I think that our, our world has changed and we don't know all the ways that it's it's changed. Um, but you know, I also teach modern Indian history and like the 1918 uh, influenza epidemic changed modern Indian history in very profound mm -hmm. ways. Um, and so thinking about that, like 
who knows what, what's going to happen when the world sort of opens back up and we can mm -hmm. travel again and things like that. In terms of pedagogy specifically, I think that one sort of, I, mean, I hesitate to even call it a silver lining. Is there a silver lining to a pandemic? I don't know, but it's a thing, um, is that I, I teach about Islam a fair amount and, and Muslim peoples in various times and places. And it's always been very hard to get students to understand what the world was like before 9-11. And I think part of that, you know, cause like most of my students, they just assume that like Islamophobia and hating on Muslims has always been this like huge thing in American society. And it's like, I try to explain like, yes, there's always been Islamophobia, but like, it really wasn't like the biggest issue, right? Like in the nineties, you know, like the Taliban were doing whatever, like not that big of a deal anyways. Um, and so I think that the pandemic sort of it helps with this in the sense that it is also a situation where like the world was one way and then it happened and the world is another way and like everything else about the two is is different um but just mm -hmm. that sort of nature that you can have a change like that that it is helpful i think to help my students understand and basically just sort of believe me that the 9-11 actually did change a whole lot of stuff overnight mm. Audrey Trushke, Teresa McPhail, Maddie Larkin, thank you so much for this discussion. And, and now we'll have to reconvene late in the year uh, in December to find out how your teaching and learning experiences have gone now that we've sort of talked a little bit about a little bit about that. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. You can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time and on Monday, Labor Day, we'll be talking to Terrell Hagler, who's a sanitation worker in Philadelphia, uh, who has an awesome Instagram feed and was profiled in Philadelphia Magazine. So please do join us for that 5 p.m. on Monday. Teresa, Maddie, Audrey, have a great Labor Day weekend. And thank you so much for your brilliance today. Just a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you Monday, 5 o'clock.